Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The two-state solution, the idea that a sovereign, secure, and independent Palestine can coexist with a sovereign, secure, and independent Jewish state of Israel, is arguably as far from being realized now than any time in the past 25 years. With the election of Donald Trump, the unrelenting expansion of Israeli settlements, and political incertitude in Palestine, it appears we soon may be singing the requiem for the two-state solution. But what comes next? Are we living in a post-two-state solution era? What does this mean for Palestinian rights, for Israeli security, for Israeli and Palestinian foreign policy? I put these questions and more to Michael Omer Mann, the editor-in-chief of the excellent 972 magazine. We have a fascinating conversation about what the future holds for Israel and Palestine and how these next few years might play out, including some very big unknown knowns. If you have 20 minutes and want a deeper understanding of where things currently lie in the Israel-Palestine process, what the future holds for Palestinian Prime Minister Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu, have a listen. This will be the last episode of the Obama presidency. Because on Friday, Donald Trump, of course, is taking office. But on Thursday, I will be speaking with Zalmay Khalilzad, President Bush's former ambassador to Afghanistan, Iraq, and the United Nations, to get his perspective and his sense on what a Trump foreign policy might look like. Stay tuned for that episode coming up next week, if you're listening to this contemporaneously, should be fascinating. And onward to the Trump era of foreign policy. I will be here with you every step of the way trying to make sense of things. As always, if you have any questions for me, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, or just want to let me know what's on your mind, send me an email. I do love hearing from you. You can send me an email via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And before we start, I just want to say the audio quality of this recording is not up to my normal standards. Apologies in advance for that. I suppose there are some gremlins in the line between here and Jaffa. And now here is Michael Omer Men. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, a lot of people talk about it in terms of the settlements, that both geographically and politically and logistically, the presence of Israeli, Jewish-Israeli settlements in the West Bank, in the territory that's supposed to be a Palestinian state, 
precludes Palestinian sovereignty, both because it breaks up the territory, but also the necessary presence of Israeli soldiers to protect them and, and various other issues. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of other, a lot of other uh, factors at play that, that you know, put the, the entire question of a two-state solution and its sort of inevitability as the only solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at question. Um, one of them is whether the Israeli leadership um, either themselves and the public that gives them the democratic mandate actually wants that. Um, the Israeli prime minister has gone on record several times saying that there's not going to be a Palestinian state on his watch. Um, very senior members of his government and members of his own party are openly opposed to the idea of a Palestinian state. Um, and then there's the Palestinian leadership, which essentially hasn't had a democratic mandate for years. Um, uh, the PA has, has not had elections since, the, had a big split with Hamas, which also created this big political split to add to the geographic division between the West Bank and Gaza. So, with, with Hamas controlling Gaza and the, the Palestinian Authority controlling the, the West Bank. Correct. Yeah. Um, so into this sort of process, into this um, stalled effort, it seems, is, is the wrench thrown of the, the Trump presidency. I mean, how might that uh, affect the prospects for a two-state solution? I mean, it seems there has been this kind of bipartisan consensus in uh, the U.S. government uh, since at least, you know, the Clinton administration that the two-state solution is the preferred mechanism by which to approach the um, Arab-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And it seems that we just don't know whether or not the Trump administration buys into that consensus. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, to throw a wrench into something, there has to be some moving parts. Um, there hasn't been a peace process for, for a couple of years now. Um, and its, its viability was, was in question back then also. Um, you know, we've had 20 years of essentially failed peace processes um, for whatever reasons. You know, you could, you could argue that a lot of them, a lot of the failures and a lot of the, the sticking points and breakdowns could have been avoided. But at the end of the day, um, it, it hasn't, it hasn't worked. That formula, the Clinton parameters, the Oslo Accords, the Bush's roadmap, um, they've all never actually succeeded in achieving their goal. Um, the, the current Israeli, uh, consular general to New York, uh, Danny Dayan, he, who was former, former UN ambassador. The, yeah. No, he's the, the current, the current uh, UN ambassador, right? No, that's Danny Danon. Oh, Danny, Danny Dayan. Oh, Danny Dayan, not Danny Danon. The consul general. In, in New York. <laughs> no problem. The, the current consul general to New York, who is the, formerly the, the head of the, the Yesha Council, which is the, the organization that advocates for and oversees the settlements in the West Bank. He, he has this saying that I've heard him say a few times, which is, you know, you guys have been trying to make a two-state solution for 20 years, and it hasn't failed. It hasn't worked. You know, the... The, the burden of proof is no longer on me. You know, it's, it's the, the two staters who need to, to show that their, that their solution is actually the right one at this point. Mm -hmm. um, which, and, which is not unreasonable, I think. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it seems like it's a nice idea um, that, you know, liberal Zionists like me maybe can, can cling on to. Uh, but in, in reality, for reasons that you have um, articulated, I mean, it, it seems that it's, it's just like a, a, a failure. Yeah. And, you know, it, 
for a lot of people, it fails to address a lot of the core the core issues. Um, I have no doubt that a two-state formula could have worked in the past, um, even though it it requires a huge stretch for a lot of the the vested the the parties um, on the Palestinian side, namely the the refugee issue. Um, you know, the refugee issue of the millions of Palestinian refugees. Um, that would ideally like to come back into what is Israel proper and today, you know, is is pretty much unaddressed um, in in most two-state formulas that at least Israel and the U.S. have have deemed acceptable. Um, and on the Israeli side, you know, you you have a lot of security issues that, um, you know, uh, that aren't you know necessarily Israel's preferred or ideal solution, but there were people were willing to make compromises. But at this point, with the with the settlements where they are, with the Israeli leadership essentially not seeing any reason to to go out on a limb. Um, you know, Netanyahu loves uh sort of using Syria and the, and the current instability in the region as as a reason why he he's not really interested in taking any any risks at this point. It it just it doesn't seem like it's it's really on the on the horizon. So, if not the two-state solution, then what's next? Well, the current Israeli leadership, I think, would prefer to just keep things as they are for now. There's, you know, with the exception of some low-level violence, um, which you know spikes every once in a while, but for the most part is, you know, manageable from an Israeli perspective, from the Israeli establishment's perspective. Um, so, know, like that means the creeping annexation of the West Bank is is part of the the the, the st- current status quo too, right? Yeah, and you know the creeping annexation can take a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to be formal declarations, even of individual settlements or or small areas. It's just you know further the further entrenchment of Israeli control over over these areas, and the you know the moving us further and further away from any solution that. That involves any sort of Palestinian sovereignty, and beyond that also is this sort of quiet, um, complete disconnect between the West Bank and Gaza. You know, the the sort of one of the the foundations, one of the the pillars of a two-state solution has always been some sort of creative solution to to the geographic contiguity or the lack thereof between the West Bank and Gaza, and and recently. We've seen that Israel has basically declared that the two are now separate. But that's a that's a fait accompli. That's a fact on the ground, um, and that makes that makes things even more difficult. I mean, can Israeli society, you know, sustain itself without the prospect of a, a two-state solution? The kind of like the the idea of like a liberal outlook on the world, um, you know, it seems to be undermined by, you know, the, the creeping annexation of another people's lands and the abrogation of the rights of, of the Palestinians. Absolutely. Um, I mean, absolutely. It, it cannot sustain itself as it is today or as it portrays itself to be, or maybe what some people dream it should or can be. Um, the idea that Israel can continue to hold millions of Palestinians under military occupation without um, full or equal rights, um, living under separate legal systems in the same territory, and still call itself a democracy moving forward. That's uh, it's delusional. And you know, the other option, um, which is a, a one a one state solution or some sort of solution that sees uh, equality for for all people living in this land under Israeli control, Israelis and Palestinians alike, 
um, you know, those who, who want to see Israel uh, exist as a Jewish state, you know, that would seem to negate that. So, you know, obviously there's, there's always been this tension between Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And that's been the main argument that pushed a secession of Israeli leaders to toward the two-state solution. Because yeah, it's like yeah. a good pre, it's a pretext, right? I mean, for for um, you know wanting to be considered a, a a sort of a liberal sort of normal society, right? Yeah, that you treat everybody under under your under your control uh, equally. So what's the, the that so if if sort of maintaining the status quo is the most likely um, alternative to um, you know a stalled two state solution peace process from the Israeli side, what what's the the Palestinian response? Like what's what are are some of their next moves if one you know believes as as I think I do as as, as you do that there is just no process no prospect whatsoever towards progress on the two-state solution? That is a huge question. And there's a, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors going into that. Number one is how long, you know, Mahmoud Abbas is, is an old guy. Um, how long is he going to be around? And the, the follow-up to that, obviously, is who steps in in his place. There's no, there's no line of secession. There's no, um, there's no functioning, you know, constitutional government in place in the Palestinian territories. In, in either of the two uh, two political um, sort of jurisdictions, um, and various various Palestinian leaders have different plans. You know, um, I mean, Hamas is to take over. It's probably going to be a violent uh, uh, aims of, of achieving you know liberation and statehood and 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 their rights. If it's somebody like uh, Marwan Barghouti, who's currently imprisoned by Israel, um, he has, you know, indicated that he's looking for much more of a civil resistance, um, civil disobedience on the ground, um, much similar to, you know, South African type, um, mm-hmm. you know, strikes and, and uh, nonviolent protests. And then there's the the tactics of the current Palestinian leadership, which is. You know the the current path of turning to international organizations and joining UN bodies. Yeah, and, which uh, which I should say they they haven't actually done to a substantial degree. I mean they they joined UNESCO, um, and they they sought full membership at at the United Nations, but but didn't get it in 2012. So I, I do wonder if. Um, if that is the ne- the next move uh, under the the Trump administration, I suspect that the reason they didn't seek membership into other UN bodies is because the U.S. government kind of pressured them not to. But with Trump coming in, I, I wonder if if all bets are off and they seek to join a greater number of UN entities. Well, I mean, the one that they did join that is that has the potential for being consequential is the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, yeah. because they're, you know, once one party to a conflict joins, the court all of a sudden has jurisdiction. And sure enough, the prosecutor is conducting a preliminary investigation, which is the step before an actual investigation. Yeah. Um, and the biggest issue on, on her table, on her, uh, on her desk is the settlements, actually, uh, more so than, than the Gaza war, which was the, the impetus for them joining. But, um, as far as them taking that a step further under a Trump administration, you know, if he shows that he's, you know, not at all, 
if he doesn't seem like a, a fair broker to the Palestinians or if they feel like they, they don't have anything left to gain by appeasing him. I, I'm not sure what else they could accomplish by, by joining more UN organizations. Um, the U.S. still holds a veto in the Security Council, which needs to approve full membership in the, yeah. as a U.N. member state. And, you know, beyond the ICC, I'm not really sure what, mm-hmm. what, uh, what they have to gain. It, it should be noted, though, that one consequence of uh, Palestine, Palestine joining these disparate U.N. bodies like UNESCO or, say, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, those kind of UN, UN agencies, those UN bodies, is that there's this old law on the books. You, you're probably familiar with it. I don't know if not many people are, though, uh, in the United States Congress that prohibits any American funding from uh, going to any UN entity that accepts Palestine as a full member. So as a consequence of Palestine joining UNESCO in 2010, the U.S. cut off its funds for UNESCO. It's sort of an automatic trigger that happens. And this is problematic uh, from a U.N. perspective because the U.S. typically uh, pays about a quarter of the entire budget of these agencies. So one, that is actually one possible piece of leverage that the Palestinian Authority does does have in these kinds of situations. And unless the, the worldview of the, the incoming administration is one that doesn't value the UN at all, in which case everybody be letting to true. be willing to watch it all burn. True, true, true. And and I should note there is a piece of pending legislation that was authored by Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham that seeks to defund the entire UN system until the Security Council uh, reverses uh, the uh, decision last month uh, in December to condemn Israeli settlement expansions. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to add, maybe on that question, what was the effect of that vote in Israel? Is it something that they were is the Israeli government was able to pretty easily shrug off? Um. Yes and no. Um, so yes, because the, the the automatic response was essentially what Trump tweeted um, in the minutes after, which was "Hang on, Israel, I'll be there in a few weeks." Um, and that's that's essentially been the response of the, the Israeli government and members of the Israeli government, which is, you know, that's that, those are the old challenges we have we've had to deal with, and it didn't go so great. Um, they. The sort of demonization of Obama as this uh, non-friend of Israel, to put it very, very kindly, yeah. as far as their terms go, um, you know, is coming to an end. And, or, sorry, that sort of picked up and escalated um, following the U.S. abstention. Yeah. And and the narrative has essentially been that, um, you know, that will not be happening anytime soon. Uh, again, anytime soon. And in addition. These sort of really petty acts of ret- diplomatic retribution that uh, Israel carried out against states like New Zealand and uh, you know other yeah I like how, how does Israel Senegal like, like uh, you, know, re- uh, you know lash out at New Zealand they recall their ambassador does Israel even have an ambassador to New Zealand Israel has an ambassador to New Zealand New Zealand has a regional ambassador that serves Turkey the Palestinian territories. And Israel, so they huh. didn't have anybody to, to really pick out or even summon. Um, but I, it's you know, yeah. it, Israel, well, the Israeli government, you know, especially with with a lot of pressure the, and threatened pressure that's been coming from the EU, especially over the settlement issue over the past few years, 
the current Israeli government and the, the right wing in general in Israel has, has put an emphasis on sort of expanding their, their regional ties, or not regional ties, but their sort of world economic, political, diplomatic relationships to, to the East, to India, to China, to Russia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I imagine it was a bit of a slap in the face that, you know, those, those ties and those de- those developing relationships and those alliances, which may have economic and certain strategic value, mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, when it comes to settlements and, and the Palestinian issue, um, they're unable to, to sway even, even those countries. So, so that's interesting. So you're saying that Israel, uh, which historically and, and currently its most important and robust trading partners are the European Union, uh, are looking to other countries, to India, to, to China, uh, to sort of um, spread their, their – uh, hedge their bets a little bit economically and politically? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, if, if there's – if a settlement labeling turns into some sort of settlement boycott, which would invariably cause economic damage in Israel proper because there is no real separation as far as the Israeli economy is concerned between the West Bank and Israel – um, that they would, you know, that all their eggs wouldn't be in one basket. They're, you know, hedging, as you said. And, and can I ask, um, one issue on the table politically here in the United States is this idea of moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Um, you know, it's unclear whether or not that will actually happen. What is, is there like a debate in Israel itself uh, about whether or not that would be right, proper, or, you know, productive to, to Israeli security interests? Um, you don't hear many mainstream political actors speaking out against that kind of move. Um, the annexation of, of East Jerusalem enjoyed support of pretty much the entire uh, political spectrum, or at least the, the Zionist political spectrum in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would, the Israeli government would not have a problem. Do they actively want the U.S. to, to move its embassy to Jerusalem? I believe so. I mean, I'm sure that, that some in the security establishment are concerned about the possible consequences of it, that it could inflame tensions, that it could anger the, a lot of the Arab world, even countries that Israel has sort of building quiet relations with, mm-hmm. and certainly on the, you know, on the Palestinian street. Um, but certainly on paper, it's something that's, that's highly encouraged. Um, um, so, so, so what's next? Like, what, what do you think is, is, is the likely sort of likely scenarios for the next, say, 100 days, the first 100 days of, of the Trump administration in, in Israel? Like what, and, and further down the road, what sort of developments do you see being key or pivotal, pivotal to determining how um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will play out? Well, there's, there's a, few, a few sides that you need to look at. Number one, which we haven't discussed yet, is this what seems to be a massive corruption scandal looming over the Israeli prime minister. Um, and if that turns into an actual criminal indictment or investigation, um, then everything we know about the rules of the game um, have to be recalculated. And, you know, the, the makeup of the Israeli government could change. And, and that's a, a complete wild card. And, and we uh-huh. don't know, uh, on that question, we don't know if, say, Netanyahu goes down, he's, he's been serving you know, forever, is one of the longest serving, the longest serving, right, Israeli prime minister. Almost. Almost. Um, uh, if he goes down, we don't know if that will result in the right wing taking over or the, the left wing taking over. Is that kind of the idea? I, I, would, I would say it's pretty safe to say that the left wing is not going to take over, but yeah. it could be more of a center right or it could be more of an extreme right. You know, okay. Netanyahu's actually... Uh, nowhere 
nowhere near the furthest right element in his party. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, it could be a reshuffling of the, the current government with a, a few parties in and out, or it could be new elections. It's a, yeah. it's, it's, it's a wild card. Um, so that's and one the other wild, wild card, card yeah. is, is uh, the Trump administration itself, which, you know, nobody really knows what approach um, this, this team coming into the White House, which has very, very little experience in, in foreign policy and essentially no track record as far as Israel-Palestine and, and this conflict goes, um, with the exception of some, some perha- perhaps overhyped personalities. Um, you know, Jared Kushner being named as an envoy to, to Middle East peace. You know, we, we know that he holds fairly right-wing Zionist views about Israel. Um, we know that his, uh, his appointed ambassador um, is, you know, fairly involved in some West Bank settlements and, you know, has called groups like J Street Kappas, you know, Nazi collaborators. So based on those sort of uh, little tidbits of information that we have about the personalities that are going into here, uh, into American policy and in this region, it would, you know, seem that there's going to be a, a fundamental change. But we actually don't know what the calculations of the new administration are going to be. You know, the American ambassador to Israel doesn't actually formulate policy. Um, it's one of those relationships where it definitely, you know, still happens in the White House. Um, and so it, it's really, I, I think it's almost impossible to, to sort of predict other than that. You know, I mean, on the one hand, you have this this totally unpredictable relationship and a change of personalities and ideologies coming in. On the other hand, you have a president who said, you know, essentially, like, this is the ultimate deal to be made. And so it could actually result in some sort of reinvigorated push into the same old peace process that we've been stuck in for, for two decades. And and lastly is, is what happens with the Palestinians. Um, like I said, you know, uh, without sounding too grim, uh, you know. Mahmoud Abbas is in his 80s. There's no, there's no uh, clear successor lined up, um, and what happens there could could have a huge impact also. Um, well, so uh, let's go ahead, Michael. Well, th- well I just, thank you for your time. Um, this is uh, you know it's it's it, it's not like the most optimistic time I I, I think, but uh, thanks for your kind of cold dose of reality. Anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael. Not a lot of hope and cheer in this episode, Um, but that's just the way it is, I suppose. In any case, as I said earlier, I am with you every step of the way trying to make sense of Trump foreign policy in this new era of global affairs, an uncertain era for sure. But if nothing else, it should be, you know, interesting in square cut square but if nothing else it should be you know interesting in scare quotes all right see you later bye